Welcome. You are listening to Bible teaching from Island Community Church in downtown Memphis, Tennessee. We hope today's message helps you grow in relationship with Jesus. You can access more gospel resources and ways to connect with our church at iccmemphis.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you guys. My name is Barrett Bowden. I'm one of the pastors here at Island Community Church, and a special welcome to you, especially those of us who are new today. Welcome. We are so incredibly grateful that you are here. We are a big family. Um, Our church started in a living room on Mud Island and has grown to the church that we are today. But we are a family, truly, um, united by our love for one another, but also, more importantly, our love for Jesus Christ, and namely, His love for us. And so this morning, I do hope that you feel um, His love and also our love as we're together today. Let's pray together as we continue worship and spend time in God's Word. Father, thank You for the opportunity we have uh, to worship You. What a wonderful God You are. And Lord, today we just come humbly and thankfully. Lord, because we know our brokenness and our need, we also, God, know that while we deserve to be separated from you, God, that you gave yourself for us. That you, God, have done what we could not have done and could never have done. You have saved us. You have made us right with yourself by coming for us in your life, death, and resurrection. Oh, God, you have loved us and you have given grace to us. You have perfected a work for us that we might turn from self and sin and turn toward you and receive out of your grace as we believe to receive from you. And we just thank you this morning. God, I know that there are many needs uh, in our church family, even right now at this moment. God, you know us, you love us, and God, you care for us. Father, I pray for any and every person here that has need today, God, that right now we would know that you move toward us with everything that is needed. God, you give grace. And Lord, we can trust you. You who promise are faithful. God, I pray that you would stir our hearts this morning. Thank you for your word that is living. Thank you for your spirit that is within us, even testifying to us even now that we are yours. God, we just long for you today. Would you help us to know you through what you have spoken? And would you lead us to become more in love with you, Jesus? We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, church, if you've got your Bibles, I would encourage you to get them open today to the book of Romans. We're going to be continuing our series, What He's Done, and our study of the book, of Romans, and I'm really, really excited about the opportunity to study God's Word together today. So far in this book, we have been hearing Paul talk to us about the gospel, okay? We have been talking over the last four or five weeks how really this entire book is all about the gospel. And when we talk about the gospel, um, a lot of times we talk about being a gospel-centered church or 
knowing that God wants us to be gospel-centered people, what does it mean when we talk about the gospel? What we're talking about here, what we've been unpacking in recent weeks is that the gospel is the good news. Y'all can read this with me. The good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ to save all who trust in him. The good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ to save all who trust in him. In fact, what we've been looking at is the theme verse for these theme verses for this book are verses 16 and 17. Y'all read this with me as well. Hopefully you've got it memorized by now, right? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So, this is Paul's heart as he begins to write this letter to the church of Rome and to us. I want you to know the good news of God. I'm here to to be like a herald running to you in the midst of this ongoing battle to declare to you that there is made possible a way for the war to be over, for your enmity with God to be ended. There is a way for you to be reconciled with God, saved, rescued from sin and death, put back right with God now and forever. There is a way, good news. And it's all about what God has done in Jesus Christ. This is a good news book, all right? So that's kind of where we started in the first 17 verses. Now, I told you last week that as we get into the section that we're currently in, what you have to understand, and this is by way of review, all right? What you have to understand is really it's only by fully understanding the bad news that we can fully appreciate the good news, okay? That's what we kind of looked at, started looking at last week. Now, what happens is, starting with verse 18, Paul begins to help us understand that there's some background information you need to really understand why the gospel is such good news. And if you don't understand the background information, which is going to sound to you, and it is bad news, but if you don't understand it, you will never fully appreciate that the gospel is so precious. You will see the gospel as some nice message, but you will fail to see the gospel is a needed message in your life and in the life of anyone in the world. And this is where we started looking last week, how Paul begins to explain to us that the gospel is needed. And why is the gospel needed? Because God's wrath is deserved. Because of sin, because of turning away from God, God's wrath is deserved. And the question for us is, well, who is, for who is God's wrath deserved? And Paul's going to answer it in three different categories in these chapters, all right? This is review from last week. But hopefully you remember because we're in the middle of these sections. So in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, he's going to help us all know that it's not just for religious people that God's wrath is deserved, for those who had the law and turned away from the law. It's for even non-religious people, the Gentiles, 
It is also for religious people. He's, in his day, talking about the Jews. And in chapter 3, he reiterates the point, in case we've missed it so far, that the gospel is needed not just for non-religious people, for religious people, but in case you think you're outside of either of those categories, the gospel is needed for all people. The gospel is needed for you. And that's what we're looking at here in these sections. Now, last week, we started by looking at verses 18 to 25. And this was the brief outline that we looked at. And the reason I'm going back over this is because if you don't understand where we've been so far, don't remember where we've been so far, it's going to be tough to continue forward today. So last week, we looked at how the gospel is needed and God's wrath is deserved because, and this is for non-religious people, because everyone, everyone has seen the glory of God. Now, we talked together about how we know that everyone has seen the glory of God, and that's because in nature, stamped on every single thing is this huge made-by-God sign. Everything is declaring the glory of God. In creation, everyone has had opportunity to see two things about God. Everyone has understood that there is a God, His divinity, and that leads to us recognizing all of us, whether religious or not, that we are dependent on God. We recognize that there is a God in creation. Secondly, we recognize that He is powerful. And that leads to all of us having some sense within us that we are accountable, not only that there is a God, but that we are accountable to God. Everyone knows these two things. So, God's glory has been revealed, but secondly, we learned last week that God's glory has been rejected. That every single one of us, though we've known there is a God, and though we have known that we're accountable to God, have gone, no thanks. And we have all turned from God. We've said no to Him. And we've made life about ourselves, We've made life about what we want to do. We've made life about giving ourselves to all kinds of what the Bible describes as sins. And that led us to this third point, because essentially what we recognized last week was that every one of us is a worshiper. And the question is just who or what we're worshiping. And we talked about last week how we not only rejected God, worship of God, though we should have been worshiping Him and knew that we should have been worshiping Him, what we gave our hearts to idolatry. We gave our hearts to things of all sorts, trying to look for the satisfaction and the security and the purpose that really we should have always been finding in Him. We have constructed worship in other ways. And then, this is the last piece of the review, all right? We talked about, as we got into the end of the text, how the Bible describes this idolatry as an exchange. Three different times in this passage, and we're about to reread it right now, but three different times in this passage, while it's hard to hear because it truly is an indictment over our own hearts and the ways that we've lived our lives, it is a condemning sentence in a way. It shows us our desperation before God, but three different times he says they have exchanged 
They have exchanged, they have exchanged. To understand sin, you can understand it as an exchange. Exchanging what you should have found in God because he is all satisfying, all sufficient. You were made for him, he is more than enough for you. What you should have found in God, you exchanged for things that are not God, lesser things. Again and again and again, we've all done this and we'll look at it more today. And because of this exchange, three different times, the pattern of Paul's writing exposes that God has given us up to the consequences of our choices. And this is part of how God's wrath is revealed. God's wrath is not just for some future date. There there will be a date of judgment for all of us standing before God. We will be judged. But God's judgment is even seen here and now in the ways in which God has given us over to the very things that we have sought after instead of Him. And in the frustration and the futility and the disappointment and the failures of that pursuit, we can even feel what is true, which is that God opposes sin in His holiness. Okay? So that's the background of where we were. Now, today, we are going to continue uh, to look at this passage. Some of y'all are like, Woo, this is heavy. And I just want to tell you it is. One of my responsibilities as your pastor, and I pray that you do find uh, joy in learning God's word uh, under the teaching of this church, but one of my responsibilities is not to make sermons feel like I want them to feel. My job as we walk through books of the Bible, which is our uh, typical pattern here at ICC, is to teach the books of the Bible as they're written. And even the tone of my sermons reflect the tone of the passage. So I'm not going to try today to make this a feel-good sermon because, to be honest, it's not a feel-good passage. There's good news at the end of it. There's good news for us in Jesus Christ. That's what this whole church is about. That's what this whole passage is about, the good news of Jesus Christ. But for us to appreciate the good news, we have to be willing to hear the hard news, not just about the world and the brokenness in it, but about ourselves and the brokenness in us. So today, we continue our journey, the non-religious need the gospel. And if you guys want to write notes with, I hope you do. Essentially, it's the same title as last week. Just slap a part two on it. Y'all excited? I figured last week you didn't want a two and a half hour message. Are y'all good with that? So I hope it's okay. I split this in two parts. Let's start in verse 18. And uh, we will start back where we were last week, even though today we're focused on verse 26 to 32. I'm going to start back at verse 18 because I think it's important you hear the whole context. I read from the English Standard Version. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy and murder and strife, deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's word. Our main point for the day, and I hope you'll find a way to consider writing it down or remember it, is this. God's wrath against our sin is revealed in the effects of idolatry, evidence in our desires, minds, and wills. We desperately need Jesus. I will say it again for those who are wanting some time to finish writing or maybe even just finish contemplating. And we'll look at this as we go through the passage. My desire is not to create a main point, but to reveal the main point that is in the scripture itself. God's wrath against our sin is revealed in the effects of our idolatry. Evidence in our desires and in our minds and in our wills. And I say this last point, with a pastoral heart for you, pleading today that the Holy Spirit will make this point clear to you. We desperately need Jesus. You desperately need Jesus. You desperately need Jesus. And if there's anything that I pray that you'll walk away with a sense of today, is how desperately you need Jesus Christ, but also how wonderfully he has loved you and given himself for you such that in your desperation, he 
would rescue you as you trust in him. Amen? We look at the first part of this main point together. Um, I start by just wanting to call attention to the passage and namely um, how essentially all of us have to recognize that our idolatry has had effects. Now, I want to start by just looking, making sure that we understand what we're talking about again when we're talking about idolatry. I, I really find, um, I think sometimes in our day, it's hard for us to really kind of turns with sin, like what is it? And I love that the Bible uses so many different ways to help us understand our own turning from God. And I truly believe, I truly believe that this understanding of sin as idolatry is one of the most helpful ways for you to really understand what has happened in your own heart against God, this idea of exchange. So we'll start by looking at these exchanges. Now I told you in our review, right? How many times does it talk about exchanging? Three, okay? Now we're gonna look at these three exchanges um, right here at the beginning. The first exchange we talked about last week, we have all exchanged God, the creator, for something God has made, the creation, in all of our hearts. This is the first exchange. I talked about this last week. I don't have to teach it again, but I do wanna make sure you see it again. We have exchanged what? The glory of God for what? Images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. That's the first exchange. If you missed last week, it is critical. You go back and listen, all right? The second exchange is all of us have exchanged the truth for a lie. We began conversation around this last week. We see this in verse 25. Here it is. Because they exchanged what? The truth about God for what? A lie. Y'all see how original I am in my sermon points? Okay? So this is true of all of us. In our hearts, we've made an exchange. First, we've made an exchange of God for things God has created. Those created things have ruled our hearts more than God. We've given ourselves to that. Secondly, we've exchanged the truth of God. Last week, we looked at Genesis 3, and we thought about how just as it happened with Adam and Eve, all of us have fallen prey to the little whisper in our ear. Did God really say that? Did he really mean that? Are you sure? Why don't you just define God in your own image? Surely he would not be like that. Why don't you just make yourself your own authority? Surely he'd be okay with that. Surely he wouldn't say X, Y, or Z. All of us have exchanged truth for a lie. Last, here we're getting into some new territory, and we'll come back to this in just a moment. But the third and final exchange is that all of us have exchanged the natural for the unnatural. We see this here. He says here, for their women have exchanged, what? Natural relations for those that are what? Contrary to nature. I'll come back to that phrase in just a little bit, but it essentially means against nature, for the unnatural. 
So these three exchanges are the foundation of Paul's helping us to see our own sin. And he's saying whether you live in a place where you've grown up in a religious home, where you've grown up knowing about the Bible, where you've grown up in a moral culture, so to speak, or not. This is not about religion at all. This is about your nature. You have turned against God. You've known enough about him and his existence and in his power to know that you should have depended on him, that you should have submitted to him, and yet you haven't. And in your heart, you've exchanged God for something that's not of God. And God stands opposed. You've exchanged creator for created, lie for truth, and you've exchanged natural for unnatural. Now, what we want to look at today is the effects of this in all creation, but also the effects of this within each of us. He uses the term they, they, they. But again and again, he's going to have you do the evaluation to recognize, are you part of this group too? And the answer is, we are. There's three effects, and this is the bulk of what we're going to look at today, all right? Because in the main point, I talk about how God's wrath is revealed in some effects. In other words, each time God says, he gave them over, he gave them over, he gave them over, what we're looking at is evidence of God's wrath. We're looking at how this is evidence in desires and minds and wills. Now, what you got to see as we go through this is that essentially what's happening here is God is reacting to our decision to turn from him. And the way that he's reacting is by basically consigning us to the consequences of our own actions. That's part of how God's wrath is being revealed. And so we're gonna look at these effects and as you see them, see these as part of how God is turning us over to the very consequences of our own choice to turn away from him. The first effect that we see is in verse 24, that God gives us over to impure lust. In verse 24, we see here, he says, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. It's where the phrase comes from, impure lust. The two words here in Greek that I've circled, lust and impurity, essentially what he's saying is like he's given us over to like an over-desire that is an unclean desire. He's essentially saying that we have in our hearts been given over to want things that we should have never wanted and to want them too much. Essentially, he's allowed us to go after the very things that we turn to other than him and to try to find in those things 
Something that those things will never, ever, ever be able to fully satisfy, to fulfill. He's given us over to the very unclean things that we chose and allowed us to feel the inordinate desires for these things to the point of frustration and futility and failure. That's one of the effects of our idolatry. We looked at that last week, and so I'm going to spend less time on that one because we focused on it then. The bulk of my time today is I want to spend time on number two and number three because this is new territory for us, all right? The second effect that he points our attention to is dishonorable passions, to dishonorable passions. Now, if we look at verse 26, he says, for this reason, God gave them up. So this is another expression, right, of the pattern. They exchanged truth for a lie, and in the second one, God gave them up to what? Dishonorable passions. Again, very original sermon points this morning. All right? Hopefully you're seeing, you can study the Bible. All right? God's word is a treasure. And if you dig, you can get gold. Now, it's important that we understand what's happening here. Tim Keller says it in this way. Uh, when you damage your vertical relationship with God, in other words, the brokenness between you and God is always going to evidence itself in damage and brokenness between you and other people. When things are not right between you and God, it is impossible for things to be right with you and other people. And at the end of this section, what you're going to notice here from now until the time that we finish this passage today in verse 32, so much of the language that's used for us to see ourselves, the language that God is using to say, look, do you want to see evidence of the brokenness in you? So much of this language, the descriptions that are given are, are related to our own actions, not only just us against God, but us against other people and other people against us. There is a profound brokenness has happened because of the breach in our relationship with God. There's this brokenness in our relationship with other people. Now, a lot of us wonder sometimes, why are things so broken in the world? Often our questions start at the horizontal level. Why are things so broken between me and XYZ person? And one of the things that Paul's trying to help you see is, yes, it's important to notice the brokenness, but it's also important to notice where that brokenness comes from. It's coming because you have turned from God. And you've turned and made yourself your own God and made sin the lust of your heart. What do you expect when you break relationship with God, there is going to be brokenness in relationship with you and everything else, including you and yourself. And so here, Paul is 
trying to get our attention to help us see that these dishonorable passions are a manifestation of the brokenness that has happened between us and God. Now, I want to pause here because it's imperative, all right? Um, some of you reading the passage even coming in today were probably wondering, are we going to talk about verse 26 and 27? Like, that, that, that's kind of a touchy subject. And we are going to talk about it. And what I want to do is make a connection between this effect and also what follows it um, in verse 26 and 27. Because as soon as he finishes the effect of the second exchange here with dishonorable passions, and here this is clearly in the language talking about sexual passions that we have given ourselves with our own bodies to things that should not be done. He begins to talk about it in this second effect. Part of the brokenness that's leaking out of our lives because of our brokenness with God is that now as we look around at other people, there's this sexualization that happens and we end up giving ourselves and our physical bodies to others in ways that God never intended. That's why he calls them dishonorable passions. These are passions of the flesh. But then he follows it with the third exchange. And last week I didn't talk a lot about the third exchange, so we're gonna look at it today. I mentioned to you already in just listing it that this third exchange is from the natural to the unnatural. Okay, from the natural to the unnatural. And we'll just read it in verses 26 and 27 so that all of us can have a refreshed memory as we look at this. So the second effect is here. God gave them up to dishonorable passions and now the third exchange, right? Here it is. For their women exchanged the natural relations to those that are contrary to nature, and then in verse 27, he describes how it's not just women, it's also men, likewise gave up natural relations with women and consumed with passion for one another, committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So again, we go back to the third exchange and we see why here, what God is saying is something has happened. There's a manifestation of brokenness. And one of the pieces of brokenness is even just if you just look at what has happened sexually between people, there is evidence of brokenness. Because as you look out, you can see that People are giving themselves to one another in all kinds of ways that God has not designed, including the natural, which he refers to here as natural relationship. You go back to created order, man and woman given to one another in marriage, sex, 
as a gift within the covenant of that marriage to now being exchanged for unnatural. This sex is now being experienced in all kinds of ways other than within the context of covenant marriage between male and female. And he describes these things in this way. Essentially, what's happening, if you think about it with idolatry, and really, think about any area of sexual deviance. What you find at the root of it is idolatry. Here's why. Rather than looking to God, we've turned to one another to try to find in one another what we can only find in Him. Anytime there is any kind of acting out outside of the will and the Word of God, the Scripture wants us to look at our hearts and see that what's really happening at the base of that is us looking away from Him for what we can find in Him and looking for other, to others for what really we'll never find in others, but we're trying to. But at the end of the day, we're only going to find that in Him. That's what's going on here. Now, we got to pause and we got to talk about sex. Um, Romans 1, 26 and 27 is one of the most controversial passages in the Bible. I know even now, some of you, even hearing me say, we've got to talk about sex, even hearing the verses just read, some of y'all are already uncomfortable. Some of us are perhaps eager to understand more of this, but we live right now in a moment where this is a massive, massive topic of conversation. Um, not only in our church, I've had so many of you, oh, I'm so thankful. We as pastors are so thankful that we have a church that is eager to know what God says about a whole host of things, that is eager to, to study on your own, to discover what God has said, and to really work out uh, the gospel and God's word and our cultural moment. I'm so thankful. So many of you have come and asked questions about sexuality in this last few years. Our culture is talking about it, not only here in Memphis, but around our country, and really it's around the world. Um, we have had huge shifts. I think none of us can deny that. Huge shifts on cultural thinking around sexuality, in particular uh, homosexuality, and it's not easy for us as Christians to figure out what does the Bible say and what does it mean in our time. And I pray this morning, while I cannot be completely exhaustive in trying to help us navigate this conversation from this particular passage, I pray that in some way um, there'll be opportunity to be, to be helpful. I would say, even before I start, um, I know that there are diverse views in this room. I know that we have some people here who are trying to figure out if you even believe that the scripture is God's word. And I want you to, to just feel welcome here and loved here. 
I know we've got seekers here. I know we've got people who are trying to ask big questions and get them answered. I know we have people who are here today who, man, I am so thankful for the many people who feel welcome in our church seeking God, but also who, who feel accepted in our church as members belonging to God, who have helped us to know their own stories and helped us to understand more of the world and more of them by us leaning in and listening to one another. We have people here who would say that they have been pushed into same-sex attraction in ways uh, because of trauma that they've experienced. We have people who feel today that they are gay, and meaning that they're attracted to the same sex and that it's never gonna go away. That it's not a choice that they feel that they can make just to get out of it, and yet they are devoted to Jesus and celibate in their sexuality. We have diverse experiences that are represented here. We have diverse views that are represented here. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that, all right? We love all people. And we as a church do not want to single out certain groups of people over other groups of people as it relates to gospel opportunity. And I just want to say what I am sharing with you this morning, I welcome feedback even after today. This is a start of conversation perhaps for some of us, but I pray that it'll be helpful and just exposing God's word. Now, what he says here is essentially that some people... Um, are going to feel that this kind of sexuality between the same sex is totally fine. In fact, um, in Paul's day, the time he wrote this letter, what he's referencing here is behavior of the Gentiles. It's one of the reasons that he pulls out sexuality as one of the evidences of the brokenness within hearts and lives, the brokenness within sexual relationships is because in among the Greek culture that Paul is very much familiar with and he knows is very much happening in Rome where he's writing this letter. He knows that this is a common practice. There are others like the Jewish people who feel very strongly, Paul is writing as one who is Jewish background and Jewish people like some people today feel incredibly strongly that this is absolutely horrific and even to the point that some would go beyond what the scripture would say to make sure that those who do these things or feel these ways are especially condemned. But what I wanna look at is not what the Greek culture said or what the Jewish culture said, but I wanna look at what God has said. And in our day today, I'm telling you, we've gotta be careful not just to look at what secular culture says or what overly religious culture says, we got to be careful as Christians just to know plainly what God says. And here, there's an opportunity for us to know something of what God says. Now, I want to point out, I'm going to go back to um, this phrase right here, contrary to nature. In Greek, it's this, 
Not that it's all that important to everyone, but it's important to many of us. Parafusis. It literally means against nature. Now, the reason that I'm pointing this out at the start is because it's important for us to know what does God say about sexual relationship within the same sex. There are some who would think that this passage in particular is only about promiscuous sexual relationships and it's not about long-term committed relationships. Others would say that it's not about those who are made to be gay, who act within their own nature as one who is same-sex attracted, but rather this is just about if you're heterosexual, you should not become homosexual and vice versa. That is not what this phrase means. The Bible teaches clearly that God has created women and God has created men and clearly there is a design in nature for women and men to share covenantal marriage and women and men alone and thus women and men only in the context of covenantal marriage to experience the joy and the fruitfulness of sexual relationship. That's why this phrase is so important, parafusis, because it literally means this is contrary anytime it happens. It is contrary to God's design. Now, I know this is, this is hard. I myself have wrestled with this. I grew up in a church that preached this. But I feel really burdened. I've got to be honest with you. I, I pray that you'll be open, just open for a few minutes as we explore this together because I feel really burdened that in our day-to-day, -day, a lot of people feel that churches or pastors or Christians like us are just about an agenda to condemn, but we're not actually educated in how we've got to where we got with our beliefs. And I just want to say that we are people who, who does not, we, we are not a Republican church with a Republican agenda nor are we a democratic church with a democratic agenda. We are not a political church. We are also not a church that wants to just be a traditions, religious-based church. We're not a church that just wants to preach against things because that's what you do. We're not that way either. We're an educated church. We're a church that takes seriously the Scripture. We're a church that's open to big questions. We're open to change. All we want to know is what does God's Word say and what does it look like for us to be willing to receive Him and believe Him and follow Him. And I say all this to say that if you survey the Bible, what you will find is that truly, as we look at this exchange here, from the natural to the unnatural, Truly, if you survey the Bible,
And I'm going to put up some scriptures here in just a second and encourage you to just go look for yourself. You will find that again and again, sexual relationship between the same sex is noted in the scripture as a violation of the created nature that God gave us. It's noted as unnatural. And we're not talking about just some forms of it. We're talking about all forms of it. Paul, even writing this, would have known. He was very well-traveled. Sometimes we think people in the Bible, they were just so uneducated. They had no idea about the things that we now know about. Paul was very well-educated. He was very well-traveled. He would have known people in long-term committed same-sex relationships among the Greek and Gentile culture. He would have seen this. He's not uninformed when he speaks of this. He's speaking to help us know something of God. And if you survey the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and and this passage here in Romans is one of only three in the New Testament. So you add Romans to this list. But if you survey the Bible from Genesis 19, 1 to 28, Leviticus 18, verse 22, Leviticus 20, verse 13, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 17 and 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. If you survey the Bible, and here's all I would ask for you to do. If you're here this morning and you're having a hard time believing and receiving and submitting, it's okay. But I would just encourage you to just do your own work as I have done, as our church has done. Do your own work in the Scripture. And let's not argue with one another based on how we feel, based on what we think is right or fair or good, but let's talk about what God has said. Now, if we get to a point and you believe that the Bible is not God's word, that's a different conversation. But if we believe the Bible, if the hope of Jesus Christ, the message that we have is based on these words of Scripture and we hold them to be true, then we need to explore the Bible around this topic. And what you find here again and again is a clear teaching that active and unrepentant pattern of homosexual behavior is indicative of a brokenness of heart, an attitude of rejection of the Lordship of Christ, and the consequences of this if it does not get met with repentance and turning back toward God is being left outside of relationship with God and outside of his kingdom. That is the clear teaching of scripture. Now, I say all that to say, this is the truth of God's word, okay? But I also now wanna say a few other things and I wanna point your attention to the passage. What it does not say Okay, I want you to hear me out. Some of y'all may want to make a list. I have not made a list on the screen of what I'm about to say. Number one, it does not say that it is the only sexual sin that is disordered and needs repentance. It does not say that it is the only way to walk away from God in the area of sexuality. That is the only way to be broken 
is the only way to be unrepentant, the only way to be outside of relationship with God and outside of the kingdom of God because of a lack of repentance in the area of sex. It does not say that. If you notice, in fact, what do we look at with the second exchange and the second effect? In the exchange of truth for a lie, what ends up happening? Dishonorable what? Passions. Do you all see that in your notes? Even this is the beginning of conversation around sexuality. Now, here's the thing. One of the things that drives me nuts, I, I'm going to try real hard to keep myself together this morning, all right? But one of the things that drives me nuts sometimes when I listen to other people and listen to other pulpits talk about this area of sexuality is it's almost singled out as the only issue of sexual brokenness in our time. The only gross thing in the eyes of God, the only disordered expression of sexuality in our culture. And it gets singled out in this way. And this ought not be so. Because the reality is the Bible also teaches that any lust, any act of sexual behavior outside of a covenant marriage between man and woman is sin. And it's equally deserving of the wrath of God. From a look of pornography in a a heterosexual person looking at pornography in a heterosexual way is equal in terms of sin before a holy God as an act of homosexuality lived out in the bodies between two men or two women. The reality is a couple who's dating and sleeping together is equally walking outside. It's it's evidencing brokenness of sexuality that's equally deserving of God standing opposed as any two women or two men who would engage in behavior. The thing is, yes, homosexual behavior is sin, but so is so many other forms of deviant sexual behavior. And I wish that more of us would understand before we point the, other, the finger the other way, that the root issue of all of this behavior is the heart. And we ourselves in our hearts have our major issues. And so when we talk about this with other people, we shouldn't talk about it pointing the finger so much as inviting someone to recognize how the finger is pointed at all of us equally, how all of us are broken in different ways, and and sexually, how all of us are broken. That we stand equal at the foot of the cross, begging for mercy. Secondly, what it does not say, all right? It does not say that the temptation toward homosexuality is sinful. It does not say that the temptation toward homosexuality is sinful. We have to be careful. 
Even the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches, pray like this, lead us not into temptation. In other words, don't let me give in. Jesus himself was tempted, yet he never sinned. And in the brokenness of the world, all of us are going to be tempted towards sin in different ways. And the Bible does not brand those like some of our precious brothers and sisters who are members of this church who say with sincerity, I struggle with temptation for the same sex. I love Jesus and I'm committed to him. I cannot get rid of the struggle. I am tempted. Yet I am surrendered. That is the same temptation that you, even if you're not homosexual, have in different ways. All of us face temptations that we are called not to give into. And we've got to be really careful not to so not to read something into Scripture that the Scripture does not say. The Bible does speak of the sinfulness of indulgence of same-sex orientation, lustful attitudes or actual sex. The Bible does speak to that, but it does not speak to the issue of temptation itself as sin. Third, and there's only four of these in the list, what the Bible does not say about homosexuality, all right? Third, it does not say that it is worse than other sins. The Bible does not say that this brokenness is a greater brokenness than other sins. In fact, Paul's just using it as a reference. He just happens to go down the road, led by God, of using the sexual brokenness as evidence of the brokenness of our vertical relationship with God manifested in horizontal ways with one another. He uses this because this would have been an understood thing because of the culture that he's writing to in Rome. But if you think that homosexuality is worse than other sins, then you need to spend some more time with your, yourself. Evaluating your own sin. You need to ask God, like Psalm 139 says, see if there be any grievous way in me. Wow, that's a bold prayer to pray. God, show me my sin. Not many of us willing to pray that prayer. Many of us are very willing to point the fingers at other sins and very unwilling to recognize the depth of our own. It is so important that we see that this here in Romans 1 was just used to, as an example. But it's not used to say this is worse than any other perversion. It's not. It's an illustration that all of us have given up the natural for unnatural in different ways. But he's not saying that it's worse than any other sin. In fact, Paul, who as far as we know is heterosexual, describes himself as the worst of all sinners. We know he's not viewing this as worse than others, and this runs different than a lot of Christian thought today. Last but not least, it does not say that this particular sin is outside of the love and the reach of Jesus Christ. 
Aren't you grateful? I grieve um, that in our day today, there are so many who are struggling in brokenness, like all of us struggle in brokenness, but brokenness in this particular way, who feel that they can't come into relationship with you as a Christian, or me as a Christian, or into relationship with the church. Our call, friends, is to offer the same love and the same hope of the gospel to those who are caught in this brokenness as any other brokenness. Homosexuality or gayness is not the problem that Jesus needs to heal us from. It's our own brokenness of heart and our rejection of him, our idolatry, our rejection of him for something else. That's what Jesus needs to heal us from. It's that root sin in all of us. It's the heart condition behind the behavior. And the good news of the gospel is that there is mercy and there is forgiveness and there is transformation for all who turn to Christ. In fact, I point your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. I hope you'll write it down as a reference. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Aren't you so grateful for the phrase, and such were some of you? In other words, he's saying, some of you used to be like this. This is the story of the redeemed. Every single one of us has a story. Every one of us has rejection of God in our hearts, has manifested in some brokenness evident in our life. All of us have a story. And don't you think that your story could keep you from the grace of God? Do not think that just because your brokenness looks different than another person's brokenness, your sexuality experience has looked different than another person's, don't you think that that will keep you from the love and grace of God? God loves you. God gave himself for you. God has finished a work of redemption for you, and it is possible to be forgiven, to be washed, to be made right with God, to be transformed by his power, to be on a trajectory of, yes, struggling still, but learning to surrender to him who loves you and gave himself for you. It is possible for there to be a story of grace and redemption and transformation in your life. Amen? You're not outside this love and his reach. Now, I'll close this section to say, before we get to the last of the effects, there's two possible ways that I think we could go wrong. This has been highlighted. I, I, I've read extensively on this topic. I've got more books in my library. You can borrow them anytime. I have, we as a church have taken this seriously. So when I'm speaking this morning, I'm not speaking because this is just something we like to harp on. I'm speaking this because we've studied this and we feel sensitive to this. 
And this is the, the common, if you just do the evaluation and culture, there's two pits that you can follow on as a Christian and any church can follow on in the future. You ready? Pit number one. Some Christians, some churches want to be very relevant to culture. Want to seem loving and welcoming to homosexual people, which is something, yes, God desires. But in order to seem loving and welcoming, they've actually downplayed or even denied the clear teaching of Scripture on homosexuality, including this one in Romans 1. That's pit one. And the reason I call this a pit is because, friends, we have to be careful because we are called to judge culture by the Bible and not to judge Bible by our culture. You got it? Second pit, ready? The second pit is that some Christians and some churches will take what the Bible says on homosexuality incredibly seriously, but end up doing it in a self-righteous way. They rightly see that the Bible speaks about homosexuality as brokenness and sin, but they don't speak in love. It seems that they don't act in love. It seems that they don't move toward this community in the same way that they would move toward other communities in love and with a desire to see people given grace and experience the salvation and transformation of Christ. That's pit number two. What Paul is saying here is kind of, it, it, it's the gospel way. <laughs> He's clear that homosexuality is brokenness, it's sin. But he's also reminding us, and we're about to get to this as we close out the passage, that this is not a worse sin than other sins, and this is not outside of the redeeming grace of God. He's reminding us that the way that we talk about it has to be viewed through the lens of God's redemption. So, with that said, we move to the end. Because the third effect that we look at here is Paul helping us to see from his example and the brokenness seen evidence in sexuality, he now moves to helping us see that all of us are broken. And he helps us to see that all of us, all of us, number three, the effect on all of us is debased mind and will. We start with verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So what he's saying here is this is the third time that he's speaking to how God allows us to have the consequences of our own choices. And what's happening here is we get given over to a debased mind. In other words, he's saying, because you did not find God's knowledge, something that you should approve of, then essentially God's given you over to basically approve of all kinds of things that should not be approved of. Sin is affecting 
our affections and our senses, but also, as Douglas Moose says, it's also affecting our very own thinking. He goes on to say, turning away from true knowledge of God means cutting ourselves off from any ultimately accurate understanding of this world and of our place within it. So in other words, what ends up happening is we begin to see everything incorrectly. Not only have we stopped to see God for who he is, but we've also stopped to be able to see ourselves for who we are, other people for who they are, and our understanding of the world for what it is. A total redemption is needed. But one of the effects of our own turning from God is that now our minds and even our emotions are debased. He goes on and describes how this leads to something else. And he starts this list. He says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient, foolish, and faithless, and heartless, and ruthless. Wow, what a big list, right? Essentially what he's saying here, and we can find similar lists, I'll point your attention to some other passages, Matthew 15, 19, Galatians 5, 19 to 21, Colossians 3, 5, 1 Timothy 1, 9 to 10, 1 Peter 2, 1, and 1 Peter 4, 3. And essentially what he does here, he's going, okay, um, in case you think that you're good, like you didn't, you have never exchanged like natural relationship with the other sex for same sex, maybe that's you, but, but wait a second, are you good? <laughs> because actually it was never just about the brokenness singling out just sex, because actually you can see this brokenness in all of us. And he begins to make this list. And at the end of the list, I mean, just take a second, just reflect on it in your scripture. Are there any words in that list that speak to your life, your story? And, and at the end of the day, what Paul is saying is, he's convinced that you need to recognize this also hits home with you. You also, in your own story, in your own life, evidence the wrath of God. Because if you just look at the brokenness of your behavior, you can see the brokenness of your heart. And Paul closes in verse 32, and he says, though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. He's saying, okay, in everybody, there's a sense of right and wrong. There's a conscience. We all can come to some 
conclusion that there is a right and there is a wrong. And all of us also know that these things deserve punishment. And he mentions here thanatos, which is in Greek, the word here for death. This is spiritual death. It's not just physical death. So the wrath of God, of course, all of us die. So that's not too scary of a thing. I mean, it's scary, but what do you mean the wrath of God? You know, is it just that we die? Well, we're all going to die. No, it's beyond just physical death. This word here in Greek means a spiritual death. It means that we recognize that our souls are eternal and after death we will be judged and we will either live with God in acceptance with him or we will live apart from God in condemnation forever. And he says, even though all of us know that there's a right and a wrong and that those who walk away from God and do wrong are deserving of separation from God forever, even though they've heard this condemnation, this sentence of judgment, they're still trying to pat themselves on the back. They're still trying to make a way to feel better about their own sin. Not only do they do them, he says, but they give approval to those who practice them. In other words, you got a choice to make. When you hear a sermon like you've heard this morning, and you hear you're broken, and the brokenness is evidence in all areas of your life, something has got to change. You got a choice to make. Some people will defend themselves. They'll go, well, I can define what's right for me to make themselves feel better. Some of them will actually find other people who've experienced their own similar brokenness to what they're experiencing and go, but, but look at them too. And they get themselves together. And so by getting themselves together in this common brokenness group, they can feel better about their brokenness. Some other people will actually recruit other people and approve and encourage other people to join them in sin simply because by doing that and having them give in to it, they can feel a little bit less condemned of their own sin. And what Paul is saying is, you got to be careful. Because it tends to be the practice that in humanity, people will do anything to get out from under the righteous wrath of God. A true admission and recognition that I am in big trouble and I cannot get out of it myself. That is where Paul is trying to get you to be at the end of this text. To recognize that God's wrath is against our sin and the effects of it are revealed in idolatry, evidence and desires and our minds and our wills and this includes you. And the reason he's done what he's done, he's said what he said, is because he's trying to get you to see this. You desperately need Jesus. And that is where I am trying to get you today. And at the end of this, I just wanna say, are you willing to recognize how deep your brokenness truly is 
Are you willing to come to terms with the bad news? And if you are, I want to remind you of the good news. That it is your brokenness that led God in his love to come for you. It was your need that led Jesus Christ to give his life for you. God stepped in to do what you could never do. You could never rescue yourself, but God can rescue you. And even though we're deserving of his wrath and separation and condemnation, God has given his grace. God has done in Jesus Christ through his life for righteousness, his death for forgiveness, and his resurrection from the grave for new life now and forever. God has done everything needed to bring you back to him, to make you right with him. Aren't you thankful for God's love and grace? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Today, friends, you have a choice. I can't make this choice for you. Will you continue to defend yourself? To deny your sin? Or will you confess your sin and surrender yourself, recognizing that you are hopeless apart from the saving mercy of God in Jesus Christ? Whether for the first time or the 5,000th time today, you can say, oh God, I am broken and I am needy of you and your salvation. And God, there is nothing I can do, but God, I recognize that I've turned from you and that's the root of all my problems and God, I want today to turn back to you. Oh God, I believe that you came for me. I believe that you love me and you gave yourself for me. I believe that your work on my behalf is enough to save me, to forgive me, to put a right spirit in me, to keep me with you forever. Oh God, I'm turning to you. I'm turning away from my sin today, God, and I am looking to you, Jesus, and I am believing upon you. Oh God, would you make me new? Thanks again for listening to this Bible teaching from Island Community Church. We want to encourage you to join us for worship in person soon. No podcast can replace God's good design of gathering with other believers in a local church. For more gospel resources and ways to connect with our church, visit us at iccmemphis.com. We offer a prayer of blessing for you from Romans 15:13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.